Philippians chapter 2 and I'll read verses 12 to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you, with all of you. So too, you should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks after his own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, who, whom you sent to take care of my needs. He longs for, you, for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when, he, when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him because he almost died of the work for the work of Christ risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me This is the word of the Lord I preached the sermon to you this morning then coming from Philippians chapter 2 from verse 12 to the end of that chapter. The word of God spoke to us last time when we worshipped together from the first part of this chapter and it came to us almost in terms of God's people preparing themselves for a battle to suffer for Christ. You remember that that verse in uh, the end of chapter 1 where it says, uh, or, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ to not only believe on him, but also to suffer for 
him. And in this battle we've, we understand and we understood then from that chapter there is no room for selfish ambition, for vain conceit or following one, one's own interests. Instead, because of the encouragement from being united with Christ, because of the comfort of the love of Christ, and because of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, what happens is the battle and those in, in involved in the battle show tenderness and concern, compassion and care for one another. That's what happens when you are out in a battlefield. In this battle, the Christian keeps his eyes focused on Christ, who is our head, which is our example. And he never thought of his own interests or ambition. Instead, he gave it all away to die on a cross like a criminal to save sinners who deserve nothing. And there he had final and complete and comprehensive victory over the devil. And you and I are now in, in, in engaged in this battle of him who cannot realize and will not accept the fact that he is already overcome. In this battle, in, in this process, in this love and concern and compassion, which are supposed to be the, uh, living in every Christian as they serve one another every day, Paul then states in Philippians chapter 2, 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourself worthy of the gospel of Christ. A man in the army of Alexander the Great, so the story goes, also had the name Alexander. But he was accused of cowardly actions. He was brought before Alexander who asked him what his name was. He replied softly, Alexander. Alexander the Great looked at him and he said, I can't hear you. The man again said a bit louder, Alexander. The process was repeated one more time after which Alexander the Great commented, either change your name or change your conduct. Your name is Alexander? Then act like Alexander. Or change your name. Christians bear the name of Christ and they should also act like Christ did. They must conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And therefore then we go to the, the text that is uh, before us in verse 12 of that chapter. Making our salvation daily practice. After Paul pointed uh, uh, the Philippians to the example of Christ... He commences a new sentence with therefore, verse 12, therefore. The reason why he argues for their faith to be put into practice lies in the fact that Christ not only died for their sins to include them by grace into his army and his family, but because also the life of Christ is their example for Christian living. Therefore, because Christ did all these things, 
We've got in, in that, in that uh, paragraph about the work of Christ two distinct lines. One goes down. Christ came from heaven and he emptied himself and he became nothing and he died on the cross. And then there's another line goes up. But, he said, therefore God exalted him of the highest place. And therefore every knee shall bow. It is not like we have an example of a Christ who died full stop. We've got an example of Christ who died, who was raised, and now he lives with God. And therefore, he says, conduct yourself in such a way that you would work out your salvation. Paul uses an interesting expression when caused, which caused many to think that we have to win the pleasure of God by doing good works as a way of working out our salvation. That's how some people understand this. It says, work out your salvation. We have to try hard, they say, do our best and work out something which might in the end be acceptable to God. But to work out one's salvation does not mean that he has to work out something which might be pleasing to God so that he might be saved one day when Christ returns. It is impossible to think anything like this because there is nothing we can do to please God in a way to be saved other than to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, in the first chapter we read that through faith we in Him, we are filled with His righteousness. We are already righteous before God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we cannot work out something as to which we could add something to, you know, work out something. To work out our salvation is to give effect to what we already have. In other words, if I may ask the question, do you say you're a Christian? Well, what then? Live like one. That's what it means. Work out your salvation. As Paul puts it in the previous chapter, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In more than one instance, the word work out is translated with produce. Produce. It is like, it's to say that the tree of the righteousness of Jesus Christ is planted in our life. What happens now is that it produces fruit. What is planted or what has begun in principle produces something. And what is that? Verse 13 gives us the answer. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. God has given us the new life. He's planted, us in, 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 planted within us that new tree. And now he wants us to, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and obedience to him, live in such a way that there will be fruit on the tree that he's planted in our life. Why? For his good pleasure. God does, for his good purpose, God does things. He saves us for one reason, and that is to glorify him. Our verse talks about God's will working within us. He motivates our souls, and he plants a new will there. This new will then act according to God's good purposes. To work out our salvation then is to, in obedience and submission to him, 
live as people of God every day. That's what it means. To work it out is to say, you've got it. You've got the package. That's by gift. Open the package and start using it. Work it out. That's what it means. Give effect to it. This we need to do out of reverence or holy respect for God who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light to be made a kingdom of priests and to be built into the temple of God, his church. We need to work out our salvation with awe or with trembling. Uh, you remember how the Israelites there gathered at the Mount, Mount Sinai? They had already been saved. Keep in mind, God had already saved them out of the slavery of Egypt. And he took them to the mountain. And then it says there that God had made them a kingdom of priests. Exodus chapter 19 verse 6. So God had already saved them. He already put his righteousness in them because of his mercies and his grace. And now with trembling and awe. With trembling and awe, they looked at the mountain with the presence of God as God required of them holy living. How? By the Ten Commandments. By the Ten Commandments. God says, because I saved you, because I took you out of the slavery of Egypt, because I am your God, now live as my people. Live as my people. How do you live with my people? Well, honor my name. Honor my day. Honor your father and your mother. Do all these things. Because that makes you a different people. They had to work out what God had already done. But they looked at the mountain. And they saw there the presence of God. And they were so struck by awe and reverence of God that they asked Moses to intercede for them because they knew that God is a holy God. This then implies that Christian live like light which is not hidden under a bushel. Their lives are like a city on a mountain. Why? Because God wants his people to live openly and publicly as his people. It is the will of God. He wants us to act according to his good purpose. And that's why he saved us. To live to his glory. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mountain, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. That's us. That's his church. You cannot live like you are a secret agent of the Lord. There is no such a thing that a Christian can be a secret agent of the Lord. We live on a mountain. You are like a city on a mountain. Can you hide a city on a mountain? Can you take light and then put a bushel over it and say you've got light? First of all, you can't see the light. Second thing is it will die because there is no oxygen to feed it. That's the practical implication of what the Lord says. Instead... They put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light, listen, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds. What happened then? Praise your Father in heaven. You see? That is the normal Christian life. That's how it works. And he wants us to be light and salt and to shine our light before the people. 
His name must be glorified. And in Philippians chapter 2, 15, we find the very same thought. We live in a crooked and a depraved generation, and here we need to have our lights shine like stars in the universe. Like stars in the universe. Holding out the word of God of life. That's what we do. That's why God saved us. To glorify Him as we hold out the word of life to others. I don't know much about astronomy and all these things. But I think that I think I've heard it correctly. Stars don't have light in themselves. They only reflect light. Is that correct? They only reflect light. And that's what we are. We reflect the light of the righteousness of Christ that shines upon us. It is not the will of God that he sends out ministers of the word that they can one day at the return of Christ stand before him empty-handed. That's not how it works. And this is what Paul then means when he says he would not run or labor for nothing. Put into practice your faith. Work it out. Work it out. And I think this is where the church of the Lord Jesus Christ falls over. We just don't understand what it means to live like Christians every day and make a difference in the world we live in. We have to make a difference because the world is, 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 is described as a crooked generation and we are the lights shining in the darkness. Now then, he says, how does it work? He uses two examples. The example of Timothy. It is almost as if Paul wanted to bring home the principles taught in the first half of this chapter when he starts talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus. These people personified all which Paul had been talking about all along. He talks about Timothy and he says he is of the same mind. Timothy was Paul's help in the advancement of the gospel. Timothy was of... Mixed background, his father was a Greek, his mother was a Jew. He grew up knowing the scriptures from a very early stage of his life. Paul chose him to be in a companion of his missionary journeys and appointed him as an evangelist to either go ahead of him to certain congregations or to remain to continue the work of church growth. In all of this, Paul got to know him as someone who always showed genuine interest in the family of God. Paul refers to him as someone of the same mind. And unfortunately, our translation does not bring that out. In verse 20, he uses a term that says, I, I, I can't think of someone else who thinks the same as I do. That's what, he, that's what he says there. And of course, that echoes the first thing that he said in chapter, uh, the, the verse 2 of the chapter. He says, when we should make his joy complete by being like-minded. And he said, you want to know someone who's really like-minded? Look at Timothy. I can't think of someone else who, he says, who is better in this aspect. He is like-minded. He's, he went where I went. He cares for the people. He and Paul fought like one. They taught like one. They contended like one. They complemented one another. And this is what Paul was praying for in verse 2. Make my joy complete 
by being like-minded. If only the congregation in Philippi could experience what Paul and Timothy as team workers experienced, if we as a church or as any church could experience this teamwork of like-mindedness rooted in the love and the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, can you imagine what, can, what the church can be doing? Can you imagine what the church, what power the church would be if we are like-minded? All energies these days, basically in the church, go into trying to bring Christians together. Not people out in the street, not unbelievers. We spend hours and days in assembly and maybe in presbyteries to try to reconcile to one another. If only we could understand, if we would pull together in like-mindedness. But he says Timothy was a man who showed genuine concern. And of course, when you look at that genuine concern, it once again calls back to those two where it says there, tenderness and compassion. Tenderness and compassion. In Greek, it's the words operating in the same uh, semantic field. Timothy was invaluable for the work of the gospel because of his genuine interest in the welfare of the people of God. He was the ultimate example of someone who would not only who not only walked with Paul, struggled for the same cause as Paul did, but he copped the same persecution as Paul did, but in the process, as a good soldier, cared for those who fought alongside him. He did not know such a thing as looking after his own interests. That is why Paul states of Timothy, You know that Timothy has proved himself. Because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. Timothy was someone who worked out his salvation in fear and trembling to live as a Christian and to act according to the good purposes of God. We need to be like Timothy. He was a real servant, giving himself, expecting nothing in return, always looking for ways in which he would advance the course of the fellow soldier. There was a story of two women, relatives of General Lou Wallace, who came to the White House when Lincoln was president, asking about General Wallace. He had been involved in a vicious battle and they wanted to make sure that he had survived. After learning that he had survived, they spoke of their gladness. There had been a casualty in the battle named Wallace, but they were thankful and said, Thank you, it was not our Wallace. Lincoln then responded soberly. It was someone else's Wallace, wasn't it? Timothy was genuinely concerned about somebody else's Wallace. The other fellow soldier who stood in the front line to engage in the battle for Christ, there was no room for his own interests. And so should we be. Just shortly then, the example of Epaphroditus. Now, if you look at the, uh, of the map, and you looked where Philippi was, right up in the Agency, 
and where Rome is, uh, it's not a short distance. And there were no, no airlines then or uh, train connections or main roads. And the people in Philippi church were concerned for Paul in Rome. They made a collection and they sent it with Epaphroditus who put his hand up and say, I'll go and I'll be to Paul what you can't be. And he took the collection, the material things, and put it in his bag. And he took the journey all by himself. It was a dangerous one. In those days, if you'd enter the Roman territory and you were looking for Paul, people would know who you are. So he went to, to Rome looking for Paul. And his bag money that he had to protect with his life and in the process the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what happened he became ill he became ill to the point where he almost died when he got to Paul in Rome Paul said I was anxious for this man because although he brought me your gift he almost died at my feet Epaphroditus, a man who did not look after his own interests, a man who was like-minded the gospel, a man who served other people, a man who never put his own interests first, a man who had a bigger vision for the gospel. An American man was walking down the streets of a Chinese city and he saw children playing many of whom were carrying smaller children upon their backs and managing at the same time to play their games and then this man asked one of the little boys isn't that a sorry thing that you have to carry this little baby on your back while you're playing isn't that a burden for you the little fellow looked up and he said he's no burden he's my brother I can play he's no burden he's my brother Epaphroditus burdened with his brother said it is no burden He's my brother. That is what is what Paul means when he says, work out your salvation. Shine like stars in the universe. Live like Timothy. Live like Epaphroditus. Indeed, live like Christ. May God find in us a people who are like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, to live for Christ, and if needs be, to die for Him. This is how we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is how we act according to the will of Him who motivates us 
to act according to his good pleasure for his glory. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we, we must confess that there's so much of our own will, of our own interest, of disunity, of, of pulling in different directions in our own life. We don't know what it means to take care of the fellow soldier. To be like Timothy, to be like Paul, to be like Epaphroditus, to be like Christ. Sometimes, Lord, we think that to be a Christian we need to be sort of airy-fairy, sort of praying all the time and doing nothing else. Yes, you want us to pray, but you want us to go out in the street. You want us to shine like lights, and you want us to be a fellow brother, a fellow sister, to a fellow believer. Help us, Lord, to be like that. In Jesus' name, amen.